Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I am back. First of all, I just want to thank everybody who sat in for me over the last week. Uh, Tim Miller, Mona Charon, JVL, and of course, uh, Amanda Carpenter. By the way, Amanda Carpenter's new podcast, Need to Know, is just absolutely fantastic. I mean, definitely uh, elevating the, 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 the podcast. So I appreciate all of that. And of course, there's always that disorienting moment where you come back from a vacation, or in my case, a vacation, family reunion, birth of a new baby, wedding, you know, saying goodbye to the French grandkids and all of that, and then suddenly being back here and going, okay, what did I miss? What's happened in the world? <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about. So Mike Murphy, thank you so much for helping me re-enter our dysfunctional world here. Well, if you have, you know, I would advise you as a friend to backtrack and escape it because it's incredibly yeah. dysfunctional and depressing. If you've got any respite or place of peace to go, I'd go there. Uh, it is just grim. I tried. And then so the reentry is a little bit traumatic. So, hey, for our listeners who the handful of you who do not know Mike Murphy, he's a GOP strategist, consultant, is advised leading Republican politicians, including John McCain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mitt Romney and uh, co-director of the USC Center for the Political Future, and most important of all, co-host of the podcast, Hacks on Tap, and uh, fellow rage monster about American <laughs> politics. Is that, is, that, is that fair? Oh, absolutely. I, I keep wondering why I don't turn green every time I see Trump and like go on a rampage and throw some trucks around, because yeah, I'm a total rage monster these days. So we, we can, I want to back into the, I'm sorry, risible bullshit ruling by the federal judge in the, in the case of Mar-a-Lago. I mean, I suppose all we need to do is just sort of play Bill Barr, that when Bill Barr thinks that the judge blew it, you know, it's bad. He, says, he goes on Fox News, yeah, the opinion I think was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. It's deeply flawed in a number of ways. Yeah, when okay, he's offended, you know, it's uh, it's uh, something. It it is something we can we can break that down, but you know we'll we'll start off with uh, the today's latest bombshell that you know okay I, I you, this is where I, I struggle against the PTSD of like you know knowing that it's not going to make a difference and we'll forget about it forty eight hours from now, but it does seem to be kind of a BFD that uh, Washington Post is reporting this morning that material on foreign nations' nuclear capabilities were seized at uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago, a document describing a foreign government's military defenses, including its nuclear capabilities, was found by FBI agents who searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence and private club last month, according to people familiar with the matter. Under yeah, yes, here's an understatement. Underscoring uh, concerns among U.S. intelligence officials about classified material stashed in the Florida property. Now, we're in this weird world, Mike, because you can sort of, you, you and I are both old enough to remember when Marco Rubio was not a total squish hack, or is that, am I being naive there? Was he always a total squish <laughs> hack? Okay, help me, help me. You know, look, yeah. I was one of his first donors when he first yeah. ran for Senate. I, I know Marco pretty well from those days anyway, but he has developed a super, superhuman ability to slide under a closed door now in the Trump era, which is much like Lindsey Graham, another old friend of mine, disappointing. So it's been a, I have to stretch my memory to remember good Marco. It's, it's almost like Marco Robio is looking at Lindsey Graham and thinking, you know, I could be him. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. So this story breaks 
Steve Ducey on Fox News, who is going through some interesting things, recognizes kind of a, a big deal. And he's talking with Marco Rubio about it, who doesn't think it's a big deal. Let's just play about a minute and a half of that. You know, you can understand why, uh, you know, when we first heard about this stuff, when we heard, well, maybe it's things like a, a note from Kim Jong-un to uh, President Trump that he wanted to keep his hands on. But then... If true, this Washington Post report, highly classified documents at Mar-a-Lago uh, that only a cabinet level officer or higher could even look at, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing you should have uh, in your post-presidential desk drawer. Well, let's break this down. First of all, uh, again, we, we really don't know, because let's go back and understand that all of this information is coming from one side and one place. And that is sources with knowledge of the investigation. Well, who are the sources with knowledge of the investigation? The FBI and the Justice Department. And they are leaking to the media. So generally, and when there's an investigation by the FBI or the Justice Department, they're not even acknowledging there is an investigation, much less leaking. These people every single day are strategically leaking information that can't be rebutted, by the way, or in any way analyzed, for a reason. And that's politics, to influence the narrative. And so I'm, first of all, very skeptical of that. I also, the, the whole thing about only cabinet officials could know, that, that's not the way classification works. Classification is based on both the compartment, the way it's classified, at what level, and then the need-to-know basis. Yeah, habada, habada, yeah, habada. yeah, yeah, shorter version of, of Marco Rubio. He's way, way more concerned about the leaking by the evil FBI and Justice Department than he is about the fact that Donald Trump had a box full of nuclear information. Yeah, no, so, it's the old sophist trick of, well, the staples were crooked on the document, so I'm not <laughs> sure what's really going on, so I can't really have an opinion about it. You know, it's ridiculous. But again, I think we're going to see the, the pattern for people who think, well, no, this is going to be the breaking point. You know, that, that you know, sane grown-up Republicans are going to look at this and go, okay, I thought it was just, um, you know, some random notes, but actual nuclear secrets. Okay, you know, I'm I'm done. No, they will always find a way to, I don't know, the word spin doesn't feel strong enough. Sophistry, I think, is better. Yeah, no, I think I think sophistry is the thing, and they're creating this alternate reality. Now, the minute Trump starts to implode within the rank and file or, yeah. or decline, and there's evidence that he is, then they're all going to pivot again. Well, yeah, I was very troubled the whole time. I call it the Vichy GOP. You know, well, I was in my basement working on my my counterattack plan, but no need to move too quick until the British American tanks are out front. Then I can make my move. You know, it, it's just, um, I don't know. It's like we said, we're rage monsters about it. I do think that the press, the D.C. press's obsession with covering the legal maneuvering like the yeah. Super Bowl is not always that helpful. I get the journalistic imperative to do it, but it makes it look like another Washington kitten swipe, you know, moral equivalence fight. When when the headline here is the highly classified, both Defense Department and apparently CIA material, which puts sources and methods at risk, which can result in the death of intelligence assets. Um, it's really, really big stuff. And I think they have to keep the eye on that ball rather than the whatever the the, the ref shoelaces are untied. No, I, I agree. And, and that's where you, you pull back the lens a little bit. And the way you just described it, 
is obviously a big deal, but it's also easier to understand. I mean, there was, of course, the the danger that you get lost in some minutiae of of documents and and classification stuff that that you know ten people actually understand. This is becoming, I think, easier to talk about. So, one of the themes that I wanted to touch on today was is the whole shift in conventional wisdom. And you know, I'm I'm off the grid for seven days and. <laughs> and come back. And it is really remarkable how the herd moves. And when it moves, it really moves, to paraphrase yeah. Boris Johnson, that, you know, when I left, there was sort of a little bit of uh, tentative suggestion that maybe the midterms might not be the Republican blowout. And now it's it's all very, you know, solidly like, hey, you know, Dobbs is uh, turning the corner. And I want to get to that in a moment. The other conventional wisdom, though, since we're on this Mar-a-Lago issue, up until a few weeks ago, there was this you know, sense, I think, uh, that 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 perhaps um, the, the raid was exactly what Donald Trump needed to solidify his control over the Republican Party, that this was was very good for Donald Trump, that Republicans were rallying around, that uh, that perhaps the DOJ had blown it by doing all of this. Well, I come back to see one of the masters of conventional wisdom, Karl Rove, saying that this whole Trump document thing actually might blow the midterms for Republicans, um, suggesting that uh, this is actually working against Republicans and for Democrats, which feels like it's sort of the opposite of the conventional wisdom from two weeks ago. But here's Carl Rove's take on this. Since the search on uh, August 8th, what have we been talking about? We're now, you know, just shy of a month of uh, talking about this issue. And if you're a Democrat, you love it because uh, Republicans uh, are forced to talk about Trump taking classified documents to Mar-a-Lago instead of inflation economy, the the crisis at the border or crime. Uh, So if you're a Democrat, you want them to be talking about this. If you're a Republican, you really want to be talking about these things. And so ironically enough, the decision for a special master, as you've heard, this is going to slow the whole process up. Hmm. Mike Murphy, what do you think? Well, look, Carol's looking at it from Campaign 101. And that's not a crazy thing to do, which is what's on the front page, our stuff or their stuff. Because a lot of campaign communication is ball control. You know, are we talking about the price of gas and groceries? Or are we talking about, will Trump go to jail? What jail will they put him in? And he's right. You know, whenever the focus is not on your stuff, uh, it's a better day for the other side. Now, there are big macro forces working here, but I, I do believe, and I've argued on Hacks on Tap, and I, I think a lot of consultant types feel, that the more unpopular Trump and his problems, if as Trump interjects himself into the spotlight, that's better for the R, excuse me, better for the Ds than the Rs. Now, does it determine the whole outcome of a mid-year uh, thing with a lot of moving parts? No. But the noise is not about gas prices, inflation, and uh, groceries. Now, it is in everyday people's lives, but it's not the narrative now. The, the narrative is this, and that is, is not the narrative that's optimal for the repubs, you know, banging the hell out of Biden. Yeah, so let's talk about this, about the state of play. Is Labor Day still like the official beginning of the campaign? It feels like there's never an official beginning because we're in perpetual yeah, campaigns. All, yeah. yeah, it's a traditional beginning, but no, campaigns now in the modern 24-7 cable wallpaper world and all the digital and the, the fundraising communication, which is no longer behind closed doors, but it's mass mailings and all that. You know, parties have become kind of a catalog business where they constantly are talking to their, <laughs> no. their people. So it never really ends. So Labor Day is traditionally when everything notches up a little. 
Well, let's pretend it's 1946 then. I mean, all right, all right. Yeah, I hear there's a big whistle stop coming. Yeah. Yeah. So Trump is pushing himself into the election campaign. There's Republican infighting between Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott about the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Uh, You made the comment last week, Democrats don't get ahead of yourself. So I want to just get a sense of this because you and I are both old enough to sort of remember. In fact, I had to restrain myself from going back and Googling polling from August of 2018. It's going to say that, you know, Democrats are going to win the governorship in Florida and Georgia and things like that. So you've argued that Democrats shouldn't get ahead of themselves. But so where do you see the state of play right now? Well, I, I think it's a big mixing bowl. So, you know, if we step back to the biggest forces, one, it's a midterm election. Traditionally, the incumbent new president is punished. You know, the long term averages loses 26 seats. Uh, then we've got record inflation, you know, maybe ameliorating a teeny bit, but still huge, which has driven up prices that people deal with every week. Biden's approval numbers are pretty terrible, among the lowest of any president facing a midterm in in modern history, if not the lowest. So the big stuff says they get wiped out. Then you add kind of the second layer of things, which is often what drives the media narrative. Because, you know, every all the Washington soothsayers, you have to get on cable TV. And I'm one of them, except I've done, you know, 100 campaigns. So I've kind of been in this world. But you have to have an opinion. So you you scan a few (laughs) polls and you decide, hey, the generic ballot. And you get your four buzzwords lined up and you try to stay in the herd because it's dangerous to go outside the herd. So the new stuff is one, Dobbs, potential surge in turnout among young voters who traditionally don't vote in the midterms as much as older voters do, which would, if it happens, help the Democrats. And there's some evidence in the Kansas primary election in the special up in New York and the Hudson Valley that particularly around college towns, some of that's happening. If true, good for the Democrats. There's some early evidence it could be happening. The question is how big it'll have to be awful big. And then you've got the Republican clown show, which is not only have they been nominating cement block candidates, particularly with Trump's help in the Senate races, you also have this huge internal fight at the NRSC, the Senate committee, and I can get into all that. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, the stuff that the press loves to pay attention to, tactics, ads, personalities in Washington are all bad for the Republicans. And then, of course, the abortion issue, which is huge in voter land, is super huge in media land, because generally most people who are in the elite media probably lean a lot more pro-choice than pro-life, but that does reflect most swing voters too. So anyway, all that stuff plus psychology, I mean, we do a Hacks on Tap newsletter and we have a Democratic pearl clutching index every week uh, because, you know, we're we're the stupid party and they're the neurotic party, really. Mm -hmm. And so you add all that together and the irresistible narrative is Democrats having come back. And of course, the Dems psychologically have been so far down in the dumps. We're going to get wiped out. It's the end of the world. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, Biden's over. Uh, these green shoots in the data, and there are some, are hopeful, and that's led to kind of an explosion of euphoria. Now, I've been around, as you said, I I can be carbon dated. I've I've been at this since 1982. And August polling is not always a guarantor of November results. So I do think, particularly in the Senate races, the Democrats are punching above their historical weight right now, and they may pull it off. But we have a lot of campaign left. You show me Joe Biden's numbers, particularly on the economy, on the 20th of October, and then I'll predict the future. Until then, I'll predict history, which is the Republicans, despite their 
stupidity and pandering and I'll go on for hours uh, are for free going to have some good results. I mean, look at Herschel Walker, the worst candidate in the world in theory. Every day he says something stupid, yet he's in the hunt in Georgia. It's a tied race. So that gives you the idea of how big a pushback wave can be. And last thing I'd say is we have a nation of very grumpy voters on both sides. And in about five of the last six or seven elections, they fired the party in power or tried to, you know, they voted against it. So it's hard for me to believe that all that has changed. Although the things on the margin that make a difference, like candidate quality, Mitch is right, uh, is going for the Democrats. So that, that might tip a Senate race or two, but, I, you know, I remember 1980 where some candidates won Senate races they were not expected to win because it was a wave election. And many of those candidates who later you had to call it senator were, were scoffed at. So I would I would tell the Democrats to run like you're five points behind because I think you probably are. So, you know, I'm, I am trying to, to sort out this uh, this, this August uh, wish, wishful thinking. Um, but Amy Walter um, has a really interesting observation. She says the Democrats appear, at least now, to be winning over what she calls the meh voters. The, <laughs> the uh, Democratic Senate candidates have been consistently outpolling Biden's job approval ratings in their states when it comes to the House, the share of voters who say they would vote for Democrats uh, is anywhere between one to eight points higher than the percentage of voters who say they approve of the job Biden is doing. In other words, many voters who are unhappy with Biden are nonetheless committed to supporting a Democratic candidate. In other words, those who were meh about Biden are voting for the Dems. This is not something we've seen before. So there's a decoupling. Yeah, know? yeah. Generally, things kind of land on the big guy and the big job in the end. That's the Still. it's a referendum of the president. Now, Amy's right. The election were held tomorrow. I think in the the Dem bubble is there in the data. It's not a huge bubble, but it's there. But we're we're see what happens after we grind through campaign for sixty days, and then then we really land this thing. And I bet the Biden number is the most predictive. If if I was a Biden person or a Democratic campaign strategist, I would be all into what the hell can we do to get Biden about seven or eight more points of favorable on the economy? I think the chips bill, they ought to sell that like yeah. the Apollo project myself. But uh, I thought Biden made a mistake with his speech on the evil MAGA world. Now, as a citizen, I agreed with every word of it. And as a president, I'm kind of glad he said it. But as a political tactic, again, if Biden can't move his own numbers a bit, uh, relevant to people's everyday kitchen table economics, um, I think punishment is coming, at least in the House. And the Senate races, it should kind of be a disaster for Republicans. Some of these horrible candidates could come back to life. OK, so you said that was a mistake. Uh, and there was a lot of a uh, lot of chatter um, on, on on the bulwark about about that speech. On the other hand, this was a moment where Joe Biden came out and said, uh, this is going to be a choice election and here is the nature of the crisis, rather than try to pretend that, you know, somehow the election is going to turn on, you know, student debt forgiveness or the Inflation Reduction Act. He said, look, we're, we're facing a, an anti-democratic fascist threat. Isn't that something the president really needed to say if you are going to elevate the choice aspect of this midterm election, as opposed to just a referendum on his presidency. Yeah. Well, look, I don't want to do a Rubio imitation here, but I get why he said it. I think it needed to be said. But as a political matter to win the midterms, the we're right, you're evil debate, it'll please folks like us, you know, uh, Republicans who can't believe what's happened to our party, I'm, I'm conservatives. But 
to go win the election to maintain political power, I don't think he ought to barnstorm on that message. I think it, there's two things he can do. Try to push it to the economy and do himself some help. And he's got some things to say there or fade out and try not to be in the center of the election as much uh, because it becomes a referendum on him. And where his numbers are right now, they don't want that. It's not unlike the Trump thing we talked about earlier. So tell me about your suggestion that the Democrats should make the CHIPS Act the Apollo program. You're arguing that the act should be painted as a response to the big threat to our national security from China. And they could be saying, hey, we are taking leadership for the future, jobs to pay $100,000 a year in the industrial Midwest, and we're taking these jobs away from the Chinese Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd be asking why over 160 Republican congressmen voted to deny America technological security to help the People's Republic of China and kill a significant number of one hundred thousand dollar a year manufacturing jobs when they get on team Chinese communist. What kind of Republicans are they? I would be all offense on the do nothing anti this, anti that Republican Congress and frame it up that way. You're either with the red Chinese or with good paying American jobs to secure our technological future. We're building plants in Ohio. That is something you can run on and get it out of the Washington speak of the CHIPS Act and everything. But yeah, there's national security component. There's a Team USA versus Team China thing. And there's a huge surge in good paying futuristic jobs. So the, the thing is just chock full of winners. And he can even for the suburban squishy Republican vote, he can talk about this is a bipartisan accomplishment. We actually put our axes down and got something done for America. Who opposed it? Most of your Republican congressmen did. Because they don't want to get something done for America. They want to get something done for a crazy guy in Florida and his buddies in red China. You know, offense, offense, offense. And the Democrats have been searching for that issue, that message to get back some of those blue collar rural voters in places like uh, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And this, this seems like a real possibility. OK, yeah, just so an interjection. If Tim Ryan can't pull off his long shot in Ohio in the Senate race and Vance is one of those hapless candidates that a wave might still elect, I'd make him head of the DNC. Yeah, uh, the identity huge. police will go crazy, but he is exactly on message Tim for Ryan. those voters that Trump goes after. He knows exactly what to do. So these wild cards that we're talking about, the wild cards, um, you know, Dobbs being a major wild card, uh, obviously issues like this. And, and of course, you, you mentioned this before, Trump elevating himself into the election, you know, and there are reasons to think that he might still announce sooner rather than later because he thinks yeah. the legal system hates to get involved in, in campaign. So you think, if I'm reading your stuff um, correctly, that, that all this legal trouble is actually pushing him out more onto the campaign trail. And you saw that over the weekend where he sure sounded like he was he was in this race. Yeah, so, I think yeah. totally. So I don't know how much of this is just animal cunning and how much of it is you know thinking it through with Trump generally short the idea he's thinking it through. But it is true. And I, I've been to this uh, movie myself and some campaigns. That one thing ingrained in the legal system at every level is we don't interfere with ongoing elections. You know, we don't put a heavy federal thumb. And we remember all the stuff with Hillary and Comey and all that. It's just it's an anathema to them. So Trump is thinking the sooner I can argue I'm being persecuted politically as a candidate, that'll have a deterrent effect on the prosecutions. Second, I think he's feeling insecure because of the talk about DeSantis and Others. I mean, a couple of months ago, he, Trump actually went on the road to meet big donors. That is a new move for him. Normally, people have to come to him because he's the kingpin. He's super strong. Now he's feeling weak, which, of course, undermines his brand totally. So the, on one hand, announcing early is a sign of weakness to me. 
on the political side that he feels he has to scurry into the race because other people are taking space. On the other hand, as a tactic to try to chill the prosecution a little bit and put him on uncomfortable ground, the sooner he can say, I'm running for president and the left is trying to stop me with their, their friends in the corrupt legal system, the better for him, as corrosive as it is to our system. I mean, one of the problems with Trump is we have never really at the presidential level operated with somebody who has absolutely no shame. Nixon had shame. Clinton had mm. shame. Not always a lot that's of amazing, it. Amazing, yeah. But, but, but Trump's like a sociopath this way. And so that's how he does so much damage. But in his raw interest, I think, yeah, announcing, at least on the legal side, I'm not sure at all on the, on the pure politics side, I think is probably a move for him. That plus the special master gives him a little moving room to slow it down and try to build a, a political candidate point of view wall against it. But I'm guessing that Mitch McConnell and uh, both Mitch McConnell and, and Kevin McCarthy understand that that would be a huge boat anchor on them if that oh, happened yeah, before, before yeah, November. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is like the worst case scenario for down ballot Republicans and in many ways, exactly the boost the Democrats need to have to make it not just about Joe Biden and the economy and everything, but to make it this choice election. I mean, it, it makes it as stark as you could possibly make it. Oh, it totally does. And Trump will really own Republican underperformance. I mean, the rumors in the Republican House caucus now, you know, those guys like to sit around, jump up and down and watch Braveheart together. So they thought they were going to win 35 seats. Now it's going to be thinner. I think it was always going to be thinner, but it's much more likely to be thinner, which will put McCarthy in jeopardy. He may have the Shakespearean ending of Trump doing him in too. Um, and with a real speaker He's challenge, sad. you know, if he, if he dramatically he underperforms it. the crazy expectations he's facing there. But yeah, you're right. It's, um, it, 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 Trump's got no good outcome here. And the legal stuff is enough, by the way, despite the chilling effect, because who wants to meddle in an election? He He's in deep enough legal problems that I don't know if that's nearly enough to stop it. Probably not. So, Kevin McCarthy, you, you, you mentioned that there's anger in the troops. I mean, because they had been counting on this big, big, big wave. And if it's small, if it's just like nine seats, you know, they, they get control. Yeah. But, but does Kevin McCarthy get to be speaker if, if that if they underperform and that margin is that small, which gives obviously Marjorie Taylor Greene and company a complete veto power? Oh, I think I think he's in trouble. I mean, he, he does not have a lock on that caucus. He's like the cowardly lion tamer. You know, as long as he can keep throwing him steak and the big lion outside the cage doesn't tell the other lions to eat him. But if he underperforms, I think he's going to have bumps in trouble. You know, he... Um, and, and it's looking like underperformance because they've let, you know, they, again, this has been the the, the clownish uh, campaign year. They have let expectations run wild on the Republican side. They've nominated terrible Senate candidates. And now Rick Scott, senator from Florida, drained the NRSC to do what we call prospecting, which is where you lose money getting donors on the theory that the small donors you get will give and give and give and, and over time become profitable. So they blew a lot of money they could use for campaigns now on prospecting at a loss to gain these new donors. But what was really going on was some hack said to Scott, hey, we're going to go out and hit every grassroots Republican in the country, try to convert them into a donor with you. You're going to be the spokesman. You're going to be on the digital, blah, blah, blah. It was a pre-presidential move. And his colleagues are onto it. So, you know, the, the Senate committee and they're feuding with McConnell. Now, McConnell has his own big, smart political operation with money. They're going to supplant the Senate committee some. But again, it's a huge unforced error based on stupid uh, Rick Scott behavior. 
and greedy behavior that is, again, going to be a problem in some of these Senate races that are on the knife's edge. Well, and also Rick Scott was the real man of political genius who decided to put the issue of uh, Social Security and Medicare on the agenda, right? Suggesting that they be made. um, Right. Perfect October debate, Rick. Yeah. Yeah, And by the way, and you could see this in a lot of the ads. Okay, so speaking of the ads, and you had some thoughts about this the other day. I look, I I really, you know, at, at this point, I hope I'm wrong. But um, I, I have been suggesting for months now that uh, Democrats uh, had a great chance to win a Senate seat here in Wisconsin, and they nominated maybe the one guy who is yeah. too progressive. So the the Mandela Barnes issue. Now, this is another case where you have uh, August polling showing that Johnson, Ron Johnson, is so unpopular that Mandela Barnes comes out of the primary um, with a seven point lead. I am skeptical. You, Mr. Murphy. I am skeptical, too, because the when you win a primary, you get a bump. Yep. And then there's a poll, and you're, it's always often the best poll you have. Now, Johnson is eminently fireable. He is in trouble. As you know better than anybody, Wisconsin is a real 50-50 state. But what's coming, what's not in these August Hello, Senator Barnes polls, is they're going to put Mandela Barnes through about 50 car washes of negative ads. And they're all going to be the lefty, lefty, lefty stuff. Now, on the Democratic side, you might argue that Johnson is so bad that he's the one Republican even Mandela Barnes can beat. And on the Republican side, it's the same. Mandela Barnes is the one super lefty Democrat that even Ron Johnson can beat. So it's going to be kind of a fair fight. I think it'll be a close selection. Yeah. But I don't believe that lead for one minute is predictive of where this thing will be in October. No, and, and this, this is something I've been warning people about is, you know, do you take the numbers and then say, well, well what will they be after $20 million worth of Oppo research is dropped on your head? So I got a text message early this morning uh, from somebody here in Wisconsin who's watching television more carefully than I have been since I've been out of town. And uh, they've already started the ads uh, aimed at Mandela Barnes. And the one ad that is getting a lot of traction, a lot of attention, is an ad pointing out that as lieutenant governor, which is not a big job here in Wisconsin. Oh, I remember when I worked for Tommy Thompson, I think we moved the poor lieutenant governor into a broom closet. Oh, I know. And he he felt it. It was that was that was awkward. I remember that, too. So the, the ads are pointing out that Mandela Barnes spent $600,000 on, you know, in taxpayer money on his personal security, which is 10 times uh, anything his predecessor had ever spent. So $600,000. At the same time, he was flirting with the defund the police people. So they're connecting the two. The guy has flirted with defund the police. He's trying to back away from that, but spent $600,000 on around the clock uh, security service for himself. And they're just pounding that hypocrisy. And that is just I would say an hors d'oeuvre. That's just a an yeah, indication no, of where this is going to go. Alec cleanser for where? No, no, it, it's going to be nuclear because they're ready to fire Johnson. But it could be a Republican wave year, and and you know Mandela Barnes is the opponent. I think that Johnson really wanted. So th- oh, yeah. this thing will will just grind along both ways. Mandela Barnes can win. Johnson mm-hmm. is in that much trouble. But you you got to think the national generic environment is a thumb on the scale. Now, people are going to argue that because of the Dodd decision, Dane County is going to have presidential yes. year turnout and all that. And it probably will be higher than normal. And that's good for Barnes. But boy, oh boy, uh, it's uh, Johnson got the opponent he needed to have a shot at survival. I put it that way. Okay, so I know that you've been working on Evan McMullen's campaign in Utah, and I am absolutely fascinated by that. And uh, 
have been kind of kicking myself that we haven't been spending more time on Evan McMullen's bid in Utah against the rather surprisingly Trumpist uh, Mike Lee, who at one yeah. time was 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 never Trump, who's now like like many of his colleagues come around. Yeah, super Trump now. But the Utah story is fascinating because Evan McMullen is running as an independent and the Democrats basically made the, the strategic decision to stand down. So what's what's going on in Utah? Oh, it's the most fascinating race yeah. in the country and it's being Sounds undercovered. Like it. uh, and I hopefully I, I would encourage listeners to go to Evan's website. There's a lot of good content. He did a big speech yesterday. So and to clarify, I'm working for the Super PAC. I'm okay. not working for the campaign, but okay. he's a friend of mine. And before we established the Super PAC and before he announced, we had a lot of discussions about how to do this, which, you know, is tricky. So what has happened is one, Mike Lee is in legitimate hometown trouble uh, for a variety of reasons. And so he's vulnerable, kind of like a Ron Johnson, even in red, red Utah. He had a primary challenge from a credible state senator, which held him to, I think, high 50s, like 58, 59% of the vote. So, you know, he had 40% of the R's already choose somebody else in the primary. So he's got a lot of just Mike Lee problems. The Democrats, who know they, you know, have a very hard <laughs> path there to win, decided at their convention with a lot of leadership from Ben McAdams, who has served a term in Congress uh, as kind of the leader of the party, to not run anybody for Senate. Now, they're not wild for McMullen because they know he's a center-right guy, but they're, they want to get rid of Mike Lee because, you know, they know he's just not up to the gig. So it's become a competitive race. Um, Lee is in the mid-40s, and Evan, who's now on TV, and our super PAC has been on TV, uh, has been creeping up to, you know, it, there are newspaper polls of four points. Uh, Mike Lee says it's, you know, 118 points. But it's a single-digit race with Mike Lee significantly under 50% and vulnerable. Now, the cavalry is coming in to save Lee, uh, and the big question is, can Evan McMullen continue to raise enough money to be competitive. The Democrats in Utah are kind of supportive, but the national Democrats have not been because he's made it clear he will not caucus with Schumer or McConnell. He's going to go the Utah first pure independent way. So the biggest problem McMullen has is raising money. I, I've given to him. I would encourage others to. In our super PAC, we're, we're, we're get, we got some, but we could use more. So bottom line, the formula there is for a fascinating upset, kind of like Joe Lieberman in his last race, where he became the hybrid candidate uh, uh, and, and was elected, except in the Lieberman case, it was against the left. On this one, it's against a Trumpy populist and a flawed senator. So check out the website, Evan McMullen for Senate, and uh, watch this one because it's, uh, you know, Utah has always been the most sort of hostile state of the base Republican states toward Trump. You know, Romney's been a courageous leader on it. When McMullen ran for president as an independent, nobody heard of. He pulled about 20 percent of the vote there. So the, the, to their credit, the Utah electorate is kind of on to Trump and they're on to Mike Lee. So we'll see if Evan can build that Republican, independent, Democratic, rule of law coalition to beat him. I think he's got a real shot. Yeah. What makes Utah different? Why is Utah different than, say, Wyoming? Is is it the Mormon card, the Mormon Well, factor? there is an LDS yeah. factor. I've worked in Utah politics before, and anybody who has, it, it is an impressive culture they have in the LDS. They, they have a social welfare system through the church. They take their values seriously. And they're on to Trump, you know, <laughs> I think they are, but they're also conservatives, you know, so it's, it's tough. They want the right of center 
policy, but the personal character flaws, they're, they're not blind to them. So it, it's always left Trump vulnerable there. I'm not a student of this, but it's fascinating to watch how the Mormons have not gone the way of other white evangelical churches in, in, accepting, yeah. in accepting Donald Trump. To their credit. One last question is we're talking about the midterms. I, I think it's pretty clear that the, that the pollsters had a major miss in 2016, but also in 2018, and then again in 2020 in, in many races. So give me your sense on the, the difficulty and the, you know, how you as a professional look at polling right now, because I, I think a lot of people have experienced that whole thing of, you know, thinking that the election was going to be going one way and then having the trauma of election night. Have professional pollsters fix their problem? Well, it, it is hard in our modern society to poll. I mean, the big problem is most people use polling to try to be the amazing Kreskin and predict the future. You know, I like to joke that if I were woke up one day and I was head of the People's Republic of China's intelligence service, I would immediately grab the budget and spend about $20 million quietly bribing pollsters because whatever the polls rattling around D.C. is totally sets the conventional wisdom because people look at the polls and they predict the future and they start to calculate. And the herd, uh, as you said before, starts to trot in a given direction. What we use polling in campaigns for is more to get inside what voters are looking for and what new information we can get to them to try to change their opinions. Polling is John Engler, my great old client, former governor of Michigan, who was always behind in, in at least his first race and would scoff at me and say, you know, Mike, so we, we just spent $30,000 to find out what people thought about last week. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the next week business. And, and sure enough, he came from 22 down to three terms of governor of Michigan. So people use polling as a psychological crutch to feel either better or worse about what they think right. is going to happen. So the, the, the challenge of polling is in the old days, they'd go door to door and it worked great. It was incredibly expensive. Then telephone polling was invented. And, you know, Dr. Gallup calling, people would stand up. It was like a call from the president. There was one poll that had a big brand or Harris or a couple. Then... It became harder and harder with cell phones and active lives to get a normal person to sit on the phone for 18 minutes and take a mm -hmm. phone survey. So they started calling cell phones, which is problematical. Uh, increasingly now, polling is done with what's called multimodal interviewing, which is some people get a landline call. They tend to be older and poorer. That can skew your sample. Other people get a cell phone call, and a lot of people get a text and they click it and they do an online survey. Some yeah. people are part of yeah. panels where they're paid a certain amount of money to agree to do a couple of online polls. So you have this mishmash and it goes into a big statistical machine that weights and balances it to try to reflect the likely, there's some guesswork, particularly in the off-year election, let alone in a primary, what the electorate looks like. The statistical science underneath it is very strong. But getting the right sample frame and asking questions that are smart is the hard part. So Polling is still pretty good, but don't use the horse race always to predict the future. It's a lot of the attitudinal questions inside the poll that are most useful, yet by the media, they're most ignored. And finally, one of my bugaboos, and I think a lot of pollsters feel this way. I'm not a pollster, but I, I purchase, consume, and analyze a lot of polls. Polls are one of the few cases where the media will create a story by doing right. their own poll and then report on it. And the problem is publishers are cheap. So a lot of media polling is really poorly done. But, of course, media egos get involved. Oh, our daily racing form poll is the greatest because old Charlie's always done it. And Well, not, not really so true. So a lot of distortions, 
a lot of overthink and a, a lot of attempt to use it as a therapy animal when really it's a tool of kind of backwards looking analysis. And I think that that's something that, that people need to keep in mind. You know, and again, this driving of the conventional wisdom is also, you know, just watching it is is interesting, especially when you will poll, for example, a national audience, when in fact the congressional elections will be decided district by district. They will be decided in just yeah. by the swing districts. Control of the Senate will not be decided by voters in New York or California. And you need to disaggregate. How is this issue playing out in Abigail Spanberger's district? How is it playing out in Utah? Not right. what is the top line generic national number tell you. Right. That party generic number is a bit misleading, yeah. yet it's being analyzed now like the 11th commandment, which, which is a mistake. You're right. There are local factors. There's some, there's a congressional district where somebody's building a bypass through the most popular elementary school. And that's a big thing in that half of the district. You know, there, there are always our local stuff, though it is true that the congressional races tend to move as a wave. The Senate races, because Senate candidates become more famous and can build their own brands, can be a little detached. Like even a wave may not be enough for Doc Oz, who's been such a disaster. And then finally, the governor races tend to have a lot of their own branding and are even more detached from the, the federal stuff. Because the federal stuff, ultimately, people think they have to vote for one team or another, which is why Biden's numbers are so important in congressional and, right. uh, and Senate races. Whereas governors actually have to do something. So you mentioned Georgia before, that the fact that Herschel Walker, who may be the worst Senate candidate ever, is still in the race. But... You might actually have a split decision possibly in Georgia because, I mean, I see the New York Times is reporting this morning yeah, that uh, Georgia Democrats are pretty pessimistic now about Stacey Abrams' chances of beating Governor Brian Kemp. Kemp has positioned himself reasonably well. So, you know, are, are there going to be in, in, in say, in a state like Georgia, uh, voters who vote for Republican Brian Kemp and then vote for Democrat Raphael Warnock? I mean, does that happen? You know, it used Anymore? to happen more. Ticket yeah. splitting used to be a big thing. Uh, it's declined in our more tribal era, but there it can still happen. And in the polling now, it, there is an instance of that in Georgia. I mean, poor Stacey Abrams. She was, you know, queen of the universe and then made the not smart decision to run in what was obviously going to be a challenging year for governor against an adroit opponent. Uh, the truth is, if she hadn't run, she could have been organizing. The media would have given her credit if Warnock survives, which I'm not at all sure he will. And then she could have been a credible in our new era of who cares about credentials, a presidential candidate. Now she's going to be a two-time loser and fade away because I think her odds of winning are not great. And I think the, the Times finally caught up to that story, which has been discussed in political circles for quite a while. So Will there be some? I think so. You know, it if Walker continues to be as bad and if Biden's economic numbers can inch up a little, uh, you will see some voters in the Republican suburbs, college educated, uh, higher income Republican uh, Caucasians, you're, you'll see some peeling off that are definitely going to vote for Kemp and may cross over to Warnock. But it's not going to be huge. We're, we're yeah. in a, a, a crucible politics now that is unforgiving to that kind of, in my view, thoughtful voting. Well, and that's, that's why you say in Georgia and in Wisconsin, these elections are really on, on the razor's edge, which means they're, they will be decided by a very, very small number of actual swing voters. And you and I both know that there are swing voters. But, you know, among the hyper-partisan, there, there seems to be this uh, 
this new orthodoxy that there are no persuadable voters. All you should care about is your own base where right. in Georgia and in Wisconsin, yes, it, it turnout's going to be massively important in Dane County and in Milwaukee and in Atlanta. I get all of that. But also there is going to be about 3% of the voters who are very much in play right up to the end. No, you're right. That that theory of there, there's no persuasion now, one, is wrong. And two, it's part of the catalog mentality, which is we each have a list. And the problem both parties have, which gets them into trouble, is they treat their base voters as swing voters. Yeah. So it's constant pandering to voters you get for free, and you can actually put under some pain. And I'd add one last thing about Dodge, just to throw a contrarian thing in the people. I think the real turnout question Will will Dodd motivate younger voters to show up in an off year, which they normally don't do, is about young men who are the most pro-choice group, by the way. You know, the, the media has this kind of, I'll, I'll use of the modern term of unconscious sexism, uh, uh, which is they always assume, well, abortion is a woman's issue. Young men are the most pro-choice group there is, and they have abysmal turnout statistics in off-year elections. If there's a spike there for the Democrats, that in particular could be material. It would be historically rare but the Dobbs thing is big, and there would be a lot of money spent trying to motivate them to vote. Generally, spending money to get non-voters to vote uh, is wasted money. But we're see, it's one of the interesting questions, and there appears to be some of that in Kansas, which, again, was a primary. So a turnout spike in a primary where the base of turnout is low is, you know, not the same as a general. But that that's something to really watch that, again, is, you know, they're, they're doing the easy story, which is pro-choice women are unhappy. The other, the other great contrarian thing, and then I'll shut up about this, yeah. is the group that's most invisible in American pop culture is pro-life women who just oh, don't yes, exist, know, except I at know. least one out of seven American citizens is exactly that. You can argue one out of six. Well, this is why some of this rhetoric is so uh, counterproductive, you know, about, you know, the if you're pro-life, it's because you you want to oppress women. You know, I, yeah. I was involved in the pro-life movement for years, and the pro-life movement has always been dominated by women. Uh, so, I mean, there is that. Hey, so we've gotten to the end of the podcast. And as an indication of just how full the pattern is, we have not commented on the fact that Steve Bannon is about to do another perp walk today. Oh, I love and it. He's going <laughs> to surrender. Yeah, I hate to see it, right? He's expected to surrender to state prosecutors tomorrow to face a new criminal indictment weeks after he was convicted of contempt of Congress and nearly two years after he received a pardon from President Donald Trump in a federal fraud case. So it sounds like it's going to be, you know, based on the the federal case for which Bannon was pardoned for defrauding um, the Rubes to uh, get them to contribute money for a private $25 million We Build the Wall campaign. <laughs> No, I I thought he had a charity called, uh, what was it? Christians Against Secular Humanism, Make Your Check Payable to Cash. But that might have been an old Pat Robertson scam that he lifted. No, I, you know, I made a couple of pledges in the Trump era. One was I just wasn't going to give mental space to Steve Bannon. Two, I'd never set foot in the Trump hotel, you know, and I got a couple more. So I I haven't really followed it in detail, but uh, I'm sure he did it. (laughs) That's basically, whatever it is, I'm sure he's probably guilty. Well, of course he did it. The question is whether he's ever going to be held accountable for it. And of course, how many shirts he will wear when he shows up for his arraignment. Mike Murphy, thank you so much for joining me. Of course, uh, Mike is co-director of the USC Center for the Political Future and co-host of the podcast Hacks on Tap. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was great, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. 
I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. Do this all over again.